This is the Meet Me at the Spot podcast, where we meet at the intersections of sexual health and the world around us. Each week, we will discuss sexual health current events, politics, social justice issues, and more. Get excited because it is time to start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Meet Me at the Spot. I'm your host, Holly, and this week's episode is part three and the final part of this conversation with Shannon. If you're just tuning in and you haven't listened to part one and part two, go back and do that and then come back and check out part three. This week's episode, we continue our conversation on Narcan and CPR that we finished in part two, uh, and Shannon shares about how she became Public Health Barbie, and around her merchandise and her Etsy shop, which I will put in the show notes of this episode, as well as it is in the uh, part one episode. I do want to put a content warning out there. Uh, Towards the end of uh, the episode where Shannon is talking about um, how she started her business as Public Health Barbie. I do want to put a content warning around uh, discussions of suicide uh, and mental health. And so if that is not um, something that you are in a space to listen to right now, um, please, when she starts talking about how she got started um, being Public Health Barbie, um, go ahead and take a pause and take care of yourself. I will also include links to resources if you are struggling or you know someone who's struggling with their mental health. Those will be in the show notes as well. So let's jump into part three of my conversation with Shannon. I remember getting trained in CPR way back in the day um, when they used to be really all about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Very glad when they took that away. Um, Because, you know, even the people that I love, I don't want them potentially vomiting in my mouth. Um, And so, you know, it's gross. And so... (laughs) Um, I'm like, I want to save you, but also, ew, um, that is well, too much for me. Um, one of the reasons that people don't feel comfortable responding in an overdose is the fear of people becoming aggressive or hostile, right? And we address this in the Narcan training is that this person is a stranger to you in most cases. You don't know how they're going to respond. Their heart stopped beating and now it's started beating again. It's a very terrifying experience. Do they become hostile? Of course it can happen. Is it the norm? The research says it's about 25% in different studies. Um, But if you have your mouth that close to someone else when they snap out of it, obviously there's a risk of you being injured. So I think hands only is the best. um, The research is showing it's the best for people to to respond because you can get out of the way. If someone is overdosed and you've successfully revived them and they start to come to, give them some space. It's like if you woke up this morning you know, instead of to your alarm, to someone putting something in your nose and a bunch of faces standing around you. (laughs) Right. Horrifying. Horrifying, right? I just think about that. I'm like, that is horrifying. Um, I don't mean to laugh, but I just like visualize it. And I was like, holy crap, I would lose my, I would lose my shit. Um, But yeah, and I think that's really good to think about um, is that, you know, it's not, it's not super likely or common. And also, you know, we've 
realize that it could happen. And what are some ways that we can mitigate that? Like when they realize like chest compressions only for CPR is just as effective. Like that was revolutionary. Like when we completed CPR training, we, you know, not only got our little card, um, but we also were given like mouth guards. Yeah. The breathing shield. Yeah, the breathing shield. That's what they were called. Yeah. And I remember having those um, all the time. Um, and, and thankfully, again, knock on wood, I, in all my time being an adult and trained in CPR, I have never had to actually give CPR. Um, but I'm always ready. And right after I get my training, like recertified, that's when I'm always like on the highest alert. Sure. Same thing when I got the Narcan train. I was like, oh my God, everybody could be a potential overdose right now in this Walmart. Like it was like, no, it's probably not super likely. Um, but you know, for being prepared, uh, I think is the most important thing we can do. And it's something that's so, so easy, um, for us, for us to do when we talk about harm reduction, it's something as a society, we can just be prepared to do. And one of the, the pieces that I had found when doing the research for the Narcan training was that they did modeling in different areas and they found that if, if Narcan was readily available to bystanders, just everyday citizen, that 20% of the overdose deaths last year could have been prevented. Wow. And that was for 2020 data. So obviously 2020 was a rough year to do that type of sure. research, but things could be different. And uh, there was a quote I saw a long time ago about Narcan and it says the heart of the challenge is that things could be different overdose deaths are preventable and preventable at a low cost. It is one of the most cost-effective ways to save a life. When we think about other medication and medical interventions, Narcan is cheap. It's $45 for two bo- uh, box of two doses. Yeah. Yeah, that's, wow. That's incredible. Um, that's an incredible statistic too, especially coming from 2020. Like, right. um, you know, and I think now, you know, we hear a lot more about it. I mean, we're so connected, obviously, through social media and stuff. So we just hear a lot about all of the things. Um, but it is it is really important for us to just be decent human beings and care about other people. And we don't have to, you know, drive somebody to re- a rehab facility. We don't have to, like, get into public health. Um, but I think we have a level of responsibility to just be compassionate towards people who have different life situations than our own um, and take time to listen to those, those people because you'll, you'll find that their life is not that much different than yours. Yeah. A little bit of empathy goes a long way. It really does. It really, really does. It will humble you um, real quick um, to think about these kind of situations and think about, I just made a, a video, um, and by the time this interview, it will have been a, a hot minute. Um, but just, you know, just putting yourself in that situation, it's something that um, I try to do a lot when when things happen that I can't see how it would impact me personally because I've never experienced it in my social circles. And so I try to put myself in the situation and how I would react. Um, and it really helps me to just think better, think clearer, 
and really not be so quick to just judge a situation. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and that, that comes with growing, you know, I, I just, I remember being younger. I mean, like if there's a hurricane, why don't people just leave? Like the people that stay there, right. they have well, and it's like, no, it's not easy to just leave. Right. And they it's, don't have resources. Yeah. Or anywhere to go. And like my, you know, my parents live in North Carolina and there was a hurricane they had to evacuate. Well, they had my grandpa at the time they were taken care of. So getting his medication, getting his stuff, and not being able to bring his his aide who came every day to the house. And they had right. two dogs that they had to figure out where they could go with two dogs and an elderly person who needed a lot of care and resources. And then they thought they were safe to go back home. But then on their way back, there was like a tree in the road. So they had to turn around. And thankfully, they were able to get the same house again that they were renting and stuff like that. But these are people who have resources, right? Like my parents had the resources to do that. That's not everybody. Um, and in fact, their aid didn't have those resources and right. was stayed at home. Thankfully, there wasn't a lot of damage, but, um, and, and they didn't have a lot of damage to their home, but there was a lot of damage in their community. And that has a big impact that people don't think about. So I try to really put myself in situations like if that happened to me, would I be able to just up and go? And it's like, no, um, I wouldn't be able to. (laughs) Uh, I have to do a lot of planning. And I think that empathy extends really closely with what we're talking about with the substance use community, because what I found after, you know, years of doing this is that most people use drugs for legitimate reasons. It might not be reasons that we can, um, you know, co-sign, but they use it for a reason. So, you know, with stimulants, a lot of people have unmedicated or undiagnosed ADHD. And when they use a stimulant, it makes them feel normal and good. And obviously methamphetamine is, is similar chemical cousins, we like to call it to amphetamine, which is Adderall, um, amphetamine salts. So when people are getting the desired effect because they can't ac- access medication, it makes sense why people would go that route. And there's a huge obviously in the opioid epidemic is it was, it was pain medication for a long time. And when that stopped becoming available and it got expensive, heroin is very similar chemically, right? It's not as as clean and pure as it once was, but it's a similar reaction that you get when using. And so when people had chronic pain and they couldn't get Oxycontin, they moved over to to street drugs and they don't use drugs because they like to get high, right? They use drugs because they have a need that was not being met same thing with benzodiazepines and you know when we think about our society and we live in a capitalist world it's like we take stimulants to to be able to function and then we take downers to go to sleep and you know we're being worked to the bone and people have to take these medication to make life happen working two and three jobs raising a family and at the end of the day they're all you know keyed up and stressed out and yeah they're going to take something to go to bed and it, it's you know, our lives lack balance. And when you lack balance, it's easy to, to reach for medication or a substance. And we've been doing it since the dawn of time with, you know, alcohol and other substances. I was going to say, it's so fascinating to me how people and just society as a whole um, do not see alcohol being a drug. Um, and it's like, what? People use alcohol for similar reasons that they use, you know, quote unquote, illicit drugs, right? Um, it's just getting access to things. And 
you know, we, we support and we cheer on and we engage with and, um, and stuff like that with like wine moms and talking oh. about like, yeah. don't get me started. I'm the same way. I'm like, Oh my God, it's played out. Like, I don't care. It's not your whole personality. Yeah. It is a whole personality though for wine moms. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, wait a minute, I like to have a glass of wine and I'm a mom. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about people who make it their whole personality that their kids are so terrible and life sucks so much. They have to have this glass of wine. And it's like, there are people whose life is so hard and it really sucks that they have to access another XYZ drug, right? Um, they just access a different drug and they're just using it. You know, right. That culture exists on both sides. Right. And when a woman who would be easy to say, oh, my kids are monsters and I, you know, mommy needs her sippy cup or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, but then look down on someone who uses other substances to manage their life circumstances. It's a little hypocritical. It's a lot hypocritical. Um, it's a lot <laughs> hypocritical. <laughs> you were trying to be so sweet. That you're like, it's just a little hypocritical. I'm like, oh no, it's <laughs> fucking bullshit. Um, <laughs> if they, if they stop selling wine mom stuff, TJ Maxx would go out of business. Yeah. Right. And so and like half of Etsy would be shut down. I feel like, um, it, it's become such a culture that we just kind of like normalize it. And now we're seeing a similar normalization around like weed, right. And marijuana where like back in my day when I was teaching, you know, middle school and high schoolers, it was like, Oh my God, we have to ingrain this. And yeah, we've learned a lot. Right. And we, I think we become more accepting and we start to understand that when we stop criminalizing drugs, um, it's easier and we actually get better results. We, we just get better results and we have examples of this. Right. Um, so I don't know why I, I do know why I'm not trying to play stupid. Like, I don't know why we don't, you know, we, we just stop criminalizing drugs. Um, I know why we criminalize drugs, uh, <laughs> but it's just, it's just, it's so wild to me. Um, and again, it's these systems that all play together. Um, Absolutely. Feed into one another. And poverty is uh, uh, profitable, as you said in the beginning. And that's just really unfortunate. Yeah. And that, you know, the, the, I think the heartbreaking thing is um, I grew up in Northern California where marijuana was a, uh, illegal business for some time and then became a legal business. And um, mm -hmm. the fact that we're celebrating entrepreneurs that, you know, have dispensaries and grow operations and, and these canna industries, while we have people still in prison for the same thing. And I understand that the crime was illegal when it was committed, but to be able to offer a medical marijuana license for a million dollars for a dispensary and not do anything for reentry for people who have lost 25, 30 years of their life into a prison system that has undoubtedly caused life-sustaining damage to their psyche. Um, and to pretend that those two things are okay is really disheartening. And we have a lot of work to do when it comes to clearing records and getting people out of prison and re-entry. And I hope that the cannabis industry um, is able to contribute to that in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I, so I live in New York. And, um, we just, uh, legalized marijuana, like recreational use, um, fairly recently. Um, but there was an article of the, like the first like legal dispensary opening in, in the city where I live. And the picture was like the people working at the dispensary were white 
And the, the picture that they chose for this, the man who was uh, a customer was a black man. And the comments on social media were like the irony of this picture. Right. Like what the hell was anybody? It's coded language. For sure. Oh, for sure. Um, I was like, I'm sorry. What? (laughs) What? That was, that was an intentional choice. There's no way. Yeah. Multiple people saw that image and thought, can't see a problem with that. Don't know why that would be a problem. That's such a bad stereotype. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's very, very frustrating. Um, and the fact that we're having such a difficult time with marijuana legalization gives me like no hope when it comes to different drugs. Um, I hope that we get to a place in our society where we can and safely and people can have their needs met. And obviously with counseling and motivational interviewing and peer support and therapy and psychiatry and, and this multifaceted approach that you need to be someone if you're someone who's struggling, you need these pieces in your puzzle. And I truly just hope we can get to a place where that is socially acceptable. Yeah. And I I like what you brought up too, is that, um, that hope that people who are kind of granted these licenses to, you know, run legal dispensaries. Um, I, I truly hope, um, that they are then using those resources to advocate, um, for criminal justice reform um, and for the release of folks um, who are in jail and in prison for the thing that puts food on their table every night. Absolutely. Yeah. When it was like, when it was 420 April last year, we were walking around downtown and there were like these giant balloon arches outside of one of the dispensaries. And like it had 420 in balloon letters and, I was like, this is wild. Like I'm living in a dystopian world. Like I'm glad that marijuana is being legalized and I'm glad that things are changing, but this is the reality. We're celebrating this out loud and people, you know, can't contact their parents and, you know, haven't seen their kids and miss milestones because of the way our system is set up and it didn't work with alcohol. It's not working with any other drug and we really could be doing so much better. And, you know, I understand that we live in a capitalist society and people have to make money and it's an industry. Cannabis is an industry and I'm not knocking them, but I hope that the, the heart of advocacy that was in the cannabis community in the early two thousands continues to carry through. Yeah. 100%. Um, what I heard you say, by the way, was that like the war on drugs that wasn't effective. That's so wild. Um, <laughs> News to me, right? Yeah, weird. <laughs> um, and if you're listening to this and not understanding that, look up the war on drugs and look up about how really absolutely racist bullshit that um, that was and still is. Um, we can't pretend like something that happened in like the 80s and stuff. It's something like that's very much still lingering today so as we get ready to wrap up i'm I'm interested in your etsy business being the public health barbie like where where did that kind of stem from i think much like my other story i told you i kind of stumbled into it and (laughs) um found my way um it really started um about two years back 
uh, I lost my father to suicide and we started making mental health stickers and my dad was into the Grateful Dead. We used Grateful Dead lyrics and made these little help on the way with the suicide hotline numbers. And my husband and I went to a bunch of shows and passed them out and, and started having conversations and we saw a need. And in trying to find a sticker vendor, I found a different service that would allow me to make cups and mugs. And, you know, it came to be Christmas time and there wasn't stuff to buy my coworkers and my staff. And I made my own and put it out there. And the response has been fantastic and and super humbling to see people um, being able to have a conversation. And, you know, I had a, a sweatshirt I wore in New York City on um, New Year's Eve when we were down there last year and it just said Narcan saves lives and the amount of people that just stopped us and you know wanted to say like hey man like thank you like I appreciate that and you know I'm in recovery or I lost my whoever and you know that's a it's a way to bring these things out of the shadows and that we can talk about them yeah uh first I'm I'm sorry to hear about your dad that's that's thank really you. and um I love that you kind of took that as a way to start advocacy, um, and to really kind of, um, destigmatize mental health and substance use. And it's important. Um, and to some people it's like, Oh, she makes stickers and, and apparel and stuff like that. But like you said, it's so impactful for people to see that normalized, like for you to just be down the street in New York city, um, you know, with a shirt talking about Narcan, like, for a lot of people, that's like, oh my God, thank you for normalizing that. Um, right. It's so impactful. Like, it's just, it, you know, it's it's little things and, and that makes such a big difference for people. And I think we have a lot of work to do, um, but I'm just so appreciative of the work that you do to destigmatize. Um, it's immense powerful work. <laughs> men's mental health is truly like my heart and soul. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough. It is heartbreaking the amount of men that die what they call like deaths of despair you know suicide uh, alcoholic liver disease drug overdose and um i think we live in a society right now where people make jokes about you know oh the white men ruin everything and you know certainly the systems that are upheld by white men can obviously use some some help and some change and some reformation but um people are dying and people are suffering and you know, running a walk-in center where people would come in for services. It's like um, our treatment center was 55 beds. It was 37 men, 38 men and 16 women. So it just shows you in the division how many men disproportionately are struggling with substance use because they don't get to go to sub, they don't get to go to mental health first. You know, drinking is usually the, uh, the option for men and we have a lot of work to do. And I wish we were in a society where men felt a little more safe and comfortable but unfortunately we lose a lot of, you know, strong, wonderful men in our society. And, you know, I think girls, girls run the world just as much as the next person, but we can't do it without men. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like, um, you know, there's so much shame around therapy in general, but especially when we talk about men's mental health and, and getting a therapist and, um, getting a therapist that works for you, that's hard enough on its own. Right. Um, I think it's difficult. I've I've found a great difficulty in the past in finding a therapist. Um, I have a good therapist now. Shout out to my therapist. Um, But yeah, (laughs) Um, she totally supports that I have a podcast. Um, So she, yeah, but like, you know, finding someone that like vibes with you and feeling 
you have to feel a sense of safety when you go to therapy. And, you know, men are just taught that like, you're not supposed to show your emotions and you're not supposed to be weak and, and things like that. And alcohol is so normalized, right? It's right. part of sports. It's part of, you know, uh, you know, parties and things like that. So it's, it's just normalizes a way to kind of cope. Um, and nobody's checking in on men. I saw a commercial and I forget where I saw it. It may have been on TikTok. It probably was, but it was around men's mental health. And it was like two guys at a sports game and they, they go to games together. They appear to have season tickets, I assume. And the one guy's kind of like, eh, meh, clapping his hands. And the other guy's like, yeah, I'm really excited every game. And then, um, you know, the, the point of it is, is that the guy who's always like really happy and stuff like that is the one who he committed suicide. And so sometimes right. look for these obvious signs, but, um, people who are depressed are, are so used to masking their depression that we don't, always, we don't always see it. Um, and so, you know, we have to create those safe spaces among our, our friends and our family and our community where people can be vulnerable and people don't have to be strong and they don't have to be brave. They can, they can break down and they can know that people will support them and love them. Yeah. And if I could just ask one final thing of the people that are listening is if you hear this and and you're compelled in any way, you know, your father, your brother, uncle, friend, coworker, neighbor, if you see someone, you know, just say, Hey, how are you doing really? And I appreciate you and your contribution and, you know, life would be very different without you. And I'm glad that you're here. Yeah. That's such a simple statement, but holds so much power, so much power. We have to have you on every day because um, <laughs> <laughs> you're just a delight. And I, I appreciate I have, you. Um, and um, I, I have just, I just enjoy your content so much. And I'm so glad um, to have the opportunity to, to talk to you in this way. And it's been a, a delight for me to meet like my TikTok friends in a different Same. way. I'm like, you're really a person. Um, it's so cool. <laughs> I like fangirl every time <laughs> it sounds so dumb, but I, it really is a, a fact. Yeah. It's like my literal favorite. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, and we have matching glasses. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love that for us. Um, so, um, I'll definitely link your social media stuff and everything. And, um, some of the amazing resources you've talked about in the show notes um, make sure you're following Public Health Barbie on TikTok and Instagram. It's the same on Instagram too, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, and and definitely we'll link to your Etsy shop as well. Get some good merch um, and get connected. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I hope you learned as much as I did and had such a great time the past three episodes, listening to all of the amazing wisdom that Shannon has to bring. As a reminder, I'll have a link to Shannon's Etsy shop in my show notes. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, meet me at the spot podcast to stay up to date on everything related to sexual and reproductive health and justice. If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, please reach out to me either on Instagram, you can hit me up on TikTok, that sex educator, or you can email me and my email is in the show notes. All ways to support the show are uh, in today's show notes as well. Until next week, bye.
thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, meet me at the spot podcast. Do you love the show and want to support the podcast? Well, check out the show notes for all the ways to support the work I do. All links related to today's episode can also be found in the show notes. Help others find this podcast by following me and leaving a review and also spread the word on social media. See you next week when we meet at the spot.